Quantum mechanics is our best theory of nature. It's incredibly predictively successful, and yet it's hard to understand what it's telling us about the world, what claims it's making about reality. Our guest today is David Wallace. David is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's one of the leading advocates of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. He's written a wonderful book, The Emergent Multiverse, which is perhaps the book on this interpretation. Uh, and it's gained glowing praise from people like Sean Carroll and uh, David Deutsch, themselves very active proponents of this way of thinking about quantum mechanics. The Many Worlds Interpretation um, was first proposed in uh, 1957 by Hugh Everett, and it's also known for that reason as the Everett Interpretation. And if it's correct, it has almost incredible consequences. It would mean that we live in a branching multiverse where anything that physically can happen does happen. But David will argue that it has very unassuming origins. It just reads off the mathematical formalism of quantum mechanics without adding or taking away anything. And it doesn't require that we contort ourselves philosophically either, but rather it agrees with a naturalist view of things where, or a realist view of science, where science is making claims about things in the world. I was very privileged to have David as my tutor when I studied physics and philosophy um, at Oxford over a decade ago. And I'm very privileged to be able to have had this conversation with him. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as, as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, I'm James Robinson. I'm one of the founders of the technology company OpenSignal. But in another world, I'm not. This is Multiverses. David Wallace, uh, thank you for joining me and uh, welcome to Multiverses. Pleasure. Right in the very first sentence of the introduction of your book, The Emergent Multiverse, you make what for some will be quite a bold statement, that there is no quantum measurement problem. Uh, for others, that will be, so what? Mm -hmm. Perhaps you can start by explaining why one might think, and, and many do think, that there is an issue with measurement in quantum mechanics. Good. Okay, so quantum mechanics, which I should say is you know, our, our best theory of the very small, but because big things are made out of small things, it's effectively our best theory of more or less everything in physics. So quantum mechanics seems to say something very weird about what material objects do, and it's it, the, the way it does that, it has a thing that physicists call a superposition principle, which basically says if a given thing can have one property and it can also have a different property, you can have both properties at the same time. So um, if I've got a particle that, that's here, that could be here or could be there, it can be here and there at the same time. Or if it's going, if the particle could be going this way and could be going that way, it has a state where it could be going this way and that way at the same time. Um, and that's weird in itself, but that's not the quantum measurement problem. The microscopic world is allowed to be weird. What we regard as weird is a, a consequence of our sort of evolutionary and cultural history, and that didn't involve engaging with subatomic particles much. So we could live with that weirdness if it kept itself in the, in the realm of the microscopic. But if you take the equations of quantum mechanics literally, <coughs> What they say is that when you try to measure microscopic systems, that 
indefiniteness, that two things at the same timeness, gets scaled up to the macroscopic human scale. So if I've got a particle that's here and there at the same time, and I measure where it is, then my measurement device goes into a measure here state and a measure there state at the same time, according to the equations of quantum mechanics. Um, and to use the the famous, if slightly ethically dubious, um, illustration of this uh, uh, due to Schrodinger, uh, if the way I register where the particle is, is if the particle is here, I kill my cat. And if it's, and if it's there, I leave my cat alive. Then if the particle is here and there at the same time, after the experiment, my cat is alive and dead at the same time. Um, that's weird. <laughs> and that's not the kind of weirdness that we think we can brush under the carpet by waving our hands at the cultural evolutionary origins of what we find weird. That's something that just seems to be in flat contradiction to what we observe in the world. Um, and this is a really successful theory. Really successful theories are not in the business of making routine predictions that flatly contradict the world. And so what, at least in textbook discussions, gets done in quantum mechanics is we do a kind of ad hoc fiddle to the theory when uh, when when we apply it to the context of measurement or more generally to the context of scaling microscopic stuff up to the human scale. Uh, and what the fix is, is when we have a, a state according to the maths in the theory that says the system's doing this thing and that thing at the same time, we reinterpret and say, no, what we really mean is it's either doing this thing or it's doing that thing and we don't know what, and there's some probability of it doing this thing and there's some probability of it doing that thing. So instead of saying, that the cat is alive and dead at the same time, we say, well, the cat is one of alive or dead, but the theory doesn't predict which. It just gives us some probabilities as to which occurs. So what that amounts to is a sort of fundamental shift in how you think about the theory that happens when you apply it to the context of measuring things. And I should say, incidentally, you might you might ask yourself, well, couldn't we have that that read that, that sort of ignorance reading of this indefiniteness, even at the level of particles? So come, couldn't we say, well, when we said that when we said that the subatomic particle was here and there at the same time, couldn't we just have meant it might be here and it might be there and we don't know which? And the short answer is a phenomenon called interference, which kind of allows the future of a particle to be affected by all the various um, places it might have been earlier. The phenomenon of interference makes it really, really hard. Most philosophers would say impossible to to take that sort of it's all about probability, it's all about ignorance reading of quantum mechanics and take it all the way down to the microscopic. So there's this fundamental change in how we think about the theory between the microscopic and the macroscopic. And that's the quantum measurement problem. Um, and the reason it's normally thought of as a problem is, you know, despite our species' delusions of grandeur, we normally think humans are made of atoms, they're just more physical systems. The way humans behave should be governed by the laws of physics that apply to the bits humans are made of. So it kind of doesn't make coherent sense for there to be new laws for how things happen on human scales that aren't a consequence of the playing out of the laws that govern the constituents of humans. And just generally that that kind of, you might call it a sort of soft reductionist way of thinking about the world is really ubiquitous in, in science and, and in general really, really successful. Um, and its failure in quantum mechanics would be to put it mildly, something of a shock. Right. <laughs> it's a pretty major-ish need scratching. Yeah. And another way of putting it is measurement's just a hopelessly vague word. Yeah. I mean, if we had a law of physics that said particles behave in such and such a way, 
except when the aggregate mass of systems exceeds 2.07996 times 10 to the minus 11 kilograms or something. That's a sharp law. That's the kind of thing that a physicist can cope with. But um, things obey the laws of quantum mechanics until a human looks at them. That's a weird thing to put in a physics textbook. Indeed. So, so we have this itch. How, how do we scratch it? And I, I, sort of, I know that your answer will be, it doesn't really exist. It's sort of a phantom itch. But, but maybe we start with the attempts to actually, you know, solve the problem, as it were. Sure. Okay. So the the paradox in the way I've just presented it is something you get to if you, apparently at least, if you combine our best physics with some very widely held attitudes to how we should think about scientific theories. What I mean by our best physics is just you know, quantum mechanics and the equations that seem to govern the subatomic world. What I mean by very standard ideas about what scientific theories are, are things like scientific theories aren't supposed to reach out and make direct claims about human observers. Uh, scientific theories are supposed to be in the business of describing and explaining what the world is like. Scientific theories are not just supposed to be sort of brute calculational devices who, which can't be understood beyond letting us work out how to build transistors and nuclear weapons and what have you. And scientific theories are supposed to give you a description of the world that's third personal, that makes sense uh, even in the absence of humans and uh, isn't irreducibly from the perspective of a human. So, so those, those are sort of standard positions in the philosophy of science that explicitly or tacitly most scientists hold. So the way I sometimes look at it is if you've been led to the measurement problem by this combination of the physics and the philosophy, then at some point you've got to either change the physics or you change the philosophy. Um, so, um, uh, by the way, I don't, as you allude to, I don't ultimately think that's right, but um, it, it's a good starting point for analysing it. So by change the physics, I mean something like change the equations. So um, I, I said that if a minute ago, if, if our laws said something like uh, everything proceeds according to the equations, except when the mass exceeds a certain sharp threshold and then they obey different laws, that would be an example. If you, if you fleshed out that proposal, that'd be an example of trying to change the laws in a way that made the, um, made the theory uh, avoid this measurement problem that, that would make the, the shift in the way macroscopic stuff behaves explainable in a sort of sharp mathematically clean way. You, you could also imagine changing the equations by adding new stuff to them. Maybe the stuff the equations describe isn't the stuff that observed physical reality is made of. Maybe we need to add some more stuff to the equations to describe the observed physical reality. Those are change the physics strategies. The problem with trying to change the physics is that the physics works really very, very well indeed. Quantum mechanics is, by a country mile, our most precisely and thoroughly tested scientific theory ever. I mean, it's probably up there with the theory of evolution our best, as, a, as our candidate for best ever theory, um, yeah, with, with apologies to Einstein. <laughs> um, um, so... Philosophers like the change the physics strategy, but physicists are usually pretty dubious about it. Uh, and the other strategy you'd have is, is to try to change the way we think about scientific theories. You could say, no, quantum mechanics is teaching us a deep lesson about the nature of science. Quantum mechanics is teaching us that we were wrong to suppose our theories could describe an objective world, or we were wrong not to think that humans play a central part in the nature of reality, or, or we were wrong to suppose that physical theories could be in the business of describing things that are 
accessible without being irreducibly from the perspective of the human observer. And if you look back to the infancy of quantum mechanics, people were taking quite seriously the idea, and in fact the founding fathers of quantum mechanics, some of the philosophers of the time, were taking seriously the idea that um, quantum mechanics would presage a general change in our scientific attitudes. That hasn't played out. Um, and I did, I did think philosophers should be complacent about how we think about scientific theory. Our worldviews do change from time to time. But quantum mechanics didn't kind of herald a large-scale change in the way we think about physical reality it, 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 and, and about scientific thing. Well, sorry, I'm going to uh, hesitate and, re- and reset that. Quantum mechanics didn't presage a fundamental change in how we think about the activity of science. The rest of science, whether it's the way particle physicists talk or chemists or uh, geneticists, still sticks to this kind of science describes what's going on, science is objective, science is third party, uh, science treats humans as just more physical stuff. I mean, medicine is a clear example of this, that core paradigms of medical and biological science treat humans as physical systems. And so the the price, from, from a, any sort of general how science works perspective, the price of changing the, the philosophy is pretty extreme. And so you find that while physicists often like the idea of changing the philosophy, philosophers are extremely unkeen. Right. So you have <laughs> the philosophers want to change the physics. The physicists want to change the philosophy. Exactly. And if you're um, if you're optimistic, you might say, well, this just shows the importance of open mindedness. If you're a little bit more cynical, you might say that maybe each camp doesn't fully appreciate the scale of the project they're um, proposing to carry out. And I, I want to just briefly touch on this. I guess maybe we should give a little bit more detail on, on how it works in changing the philosophy. But, but mm. I suppose, I mean, firstly, just to defend the kind of naturalist view of science, which, as you say, is, is probably very common now. I'd like to say very common in antiquity as well, and probably very common in the popular imagination that when what science tells us is things about the world. Mm. And things about the stuff in the world, not just the results of, you know, pointers on dials and, uh, you know, lights, uh, you know, illuminating at the results mm. of experiments. So probably that, that I would guess that'd be the, the kind of go-to view of most people who are interested in science, who become scientists. Mm. And, and maybe it was just an interesting time when quantum mechanics was being formulated, where actually, I guess, the philosophers were themselves also thinking along different lines. There was this kind of logical empiricist view of things where uh, there are certain things we can't speak of, we'll just talk, we'll stick on the very solid ground of pointers on dials and so forth. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, the a lot of the philosophy, um, particularly in the sort of Anglo-American tradition in the first half of the 20th century, took very seriously exactly those sort of ideas. It um, it supposed um, partly as a kind of pushback against what was seen as the extremes of metaphysical speculation. People in that philosophical tradition tried to ground things very tightly in the accessible and the observable. And for them, a scientific theory was effectively a device used a, a fiction, you might say, in order to make claims about the observable. So if you, know, if you think about, take a modern example, 
the LIGO gravity wave detector is described by physicists and by most contemporary philosophers as a device that detects the presence of gravity waves, which would have been there even if the detector wasn't there. From the logical empiricist point of view, um, gravity wave is a convenient fiction used to describe what the LIGO detector does. Um, and that position is largely defunct in modern philosophy of science. Um, it, sometimes I think it's a slightly bad rap. People misremember their history and start thinking what was wrong with it was just a, a sort of huge failure of nerve that um, uh, people forgot that their job was to describe the deep structure of reality and they was to help and just try to say observational stuff. And that's, that's unfair. There were motivated reasons why the positivists, the empiricists went in that direction. But why the program really falls apart, I think, is that to make sense of that picture of science, you have to suppose that the notion of what is observable is something basic and primitive in your science. And that's not what observation is. I mean, we have this kind of pretty picture, if you like, that observation is my visual field and the various colours in it or something. But that's a picture we get from science. That's a picture we get from our detailed scientific picture of the retina. If you ask what counts as an observation to somebody in modern physics, then their answer is going to be extremely technical and use a ton of technical terms that are not in the vocabulary of somebody who's not a physicist. And it's very theory laden to use a jargon term that philosophers use. It doesn't, you can't really understand what the observations are until you have access to the theory. I mean, is, is LIGO an observation device? Well, only if you've learned a ton of general relativity and a ton about complicated vibrating interferometry stuff, um, which you can tell I know almost nothing about from <laughs> gloss of it. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the real reason that kind of strategy doesn't ultimately succeed. It's not just that we don't want our scientific theories just to be devices to connect observations. It's that we can't make sense of the actual theories we have in that way. I start to say, if, if, if measurement devices were black boxes that had been scattered across the Mojave Desert by the gods, and quantum mechanics had been a science that developed by trying to work out what these black boxes did, well, then maybe you could make sense of quantum mechanics as a theory which is entirely about these primitive measurement devices and observations. But measurement devices are not scattered across the Mojave Desert by the gods. Measurement devices, I'm reliably informed, are made in labs by experimental physicists in conformity to physical principles. And if you ask, um, if you ask an experimental physicist, how does your interferometer work? They won't say, oh, well, it's a dark mystery. Measurement is primitive. We just have to take measurement as a basic idea. They will tell you a very detailed story involving laser optics and exactly how they calibrate their mirrors and things like that. Right. And I think, as you allude, that that works all the way down. You can think about, you know, magnifying glass or even the retina, right? It's, it's Absolutely, just... yeah. yeah. Ob observation is something that we understand downstream of our theories of how observation happens, whether that's human observation or the much more verified things we see in the, the sort of heights of theoretical physics so so coming back to i guess where we are now you have the philosophers who are dissatisfied with how the physicists are trying to interpret quantum mechanics and and, and vice versa and and here it's maybe worth um letting listeners know that that, that you're sort of on the fence in that you or maybe not on the fence but you, you you're, you're in the unusual position of having done both a, a doctorate in philosophy and a doctorate in, in physics, uh, yeah. in the reverse order, in fact, uh, I think. 
so you, you were presumably pretty unhappy with both of those things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, my view is that um, the philosophers have really good reasons not to want to change the philosophy, and the physicists have really good reasons not to want to change the physics. So uh, we can't change anything? Uh, are we completely stuck? <laughs> or where do we go from here? So, as, <laughs> as of course you realise, uh, there's another tradition which denies the way I set up the premise, and this kind of comes back to that provocative claim, you know, intentionally provocative claim in the beginning of my book, that there isn't really a measurement problem after all. And it goes back to the comment I kind of sl- slipped past you right at the beginning that, of course, the cat can't be alive and dead at the same time. Um, so why do we say that? Well, the obvious answer is like it's intuitively obvious that cats can't be alive and dead at the same time. Um, that's the intuitions don't, don't tell us much in science. More, much, much better answer is it doesn't... It, it doesn't look as if the cat's alive and dead at the same time. But does it? I mean, if you ask yourself, what would it be like to see a cat that's alive and dead at the same time? Um, well, I think we have an intuition of that. It would be like seeing a sort of blurry double image of a cat that's alive and a cat that's dead. Somehow you'd be simultaneously seeing two cats and it would it would look as if you're seeing double, as if you'd had like way too much to drink or um, uh, uh, sort of muzzily waking up from sleep or something. That's what intuition says it's like to see a cat that's alive and dead at the same time. But again, intuition isn't a great way to tell what it's like to look for things. And again, looking at things is a physical process governed by physical laws. So we better ask our physics what it would be like to, to see a cat that's alive and dead at the same time. So my seeing a cat that's alive, that's a physical process. So I've been in America too long. That's a physical process. Um, the... <clears throat> Uh, my brain goes into some kind of live cat registering state. We don't know the details. I will say things like, oh, a live cat. I will report the cat as alive. If I keep a diary, I might, I'm an extremely boring person. I might just make a note that oh, I saw a cat today. Likewise, if the cat's dead, there's a, a well understood, at least an outline process by which I register the death of the cat. That gets recorded in my brain somewhere. I comment on the cat being dead, I wrinkle up my nose or whatever. So what does quantum mechanics say happens if I observe a cat that's alive and dead at the same time? <clears throat> well, that same process of magnifying we saw earlier plays through. It doesn't, it, it, quantum mechanics absolutely doesn't say I go into some weird cognitive state um, which corresponds to seeing double. Quantum mechanics says I go into the ordinary seeing a live cat state and, an ordinary, and the ordinary seeing a dead cat state at the same time. And that process ramifies. If you ask me whether the cat's alive or dead, you don't hear me babble simultaneously in two different ways. Mm-hmm. You, at the same time, according to the equations, go into a perfectly ordinary state of hearing me tell you the cat's alive and hearing me, t- and another perfectly ordinary state of hearing me tell you the cat's dead at the same time. And if anyone listens um, to the podcast, they'll hear, um, they'll, they will at the same time be in a state of hearing themselves be told the cat's alive and hearing the um the, the um that the cat's dead at the same time and if, if they then tweet about the podcast um uh their twitter feed will be in a reporting the cat's alive state and reporting the cat's dead state at the same time mm. and all of this is correlated so yeah. the world at the same time is in a state where the cat dies i i report the cat's dead you hear me report that you pass it on to your listeners your listeners tweet about tweet about it and the cat's dead. Which are an animal, whichever of the other ones is there. There's a there's a there's a, there's a live cat 
uh, way things are and mm-hmm. I did chat way things are and they're happening at the same time. And each of those ordinary ways things are is perfectly ordinary, but they're simultaneously present. Right. Um, and humans are physical systems, humans are processing systems. A situation where we've got these two parallel goings on at the same time is a situation in effect where we've got two two chunks of physical reality, a cat being a live chunk, a cat being a dead chunk. And those chunks don't interact with each other. Each one goes along for all the world as if it was the only goings on. Mm-hmm. So we have a situation where physical reality is simultaneously doing two things, each of which looks like an ordinary set of goings on, an ordinary mm-hmm. world, and the two don't interact with each other. What you have is a, a many worlds theory, a many universes theory, a theory where the act of measuring the quantum particle, killing the cat and so on, causes physical reality to bifurcate, to come into a part where the cat's alive and a part where the cat's dead. And the really crucial thing to get across here, anyone listening, if you just take one thing away from this, take this, is this isn't a new idea um, that's being glued into the theory. It's not to change the physics move in the way I was describing earlier. We're not saying there is a measurement problem, we will solve the measurement problem by introducing this idea of parallel universes. It's that when we think deeply about the quantum theory we have, we realise that it was a many universes theory all along. Right. That's what I had in mind when I said, you know, we, we, we can avoid either changing the physics or changing the philosophy. You get the many worlds theory, by holding on to the equations of quantum mechanics, not modified at all, holding on to that picture of uh, a scientific theory as something that gives an objective third party observation, independent description of what what's actually going on in the universe, and then just taking those together and thinking very carefully about what the theory is actually describing, what it's actually representing about physical systems. So. Bizarrely, that way of thinking about quantum mechanics, in one sense, is extremely conservative. Doesn't right. change physics, doesn't change the philosophy, lets us make sense of the theory as we find it in the way we're used to thinking of theories. But of course, in another sense, it's radically not conservative because it really is saying that every time we see a quantum measurement, then uh, we split into multiple copies, which is uh, clearly has a science fictional sound to it. Yeah, and I, I, I definitely want to get into the, to that aspect of it, but I think it's as you say, this is probably the crux of your book uh, and the, the many yes. worlds interpretation. How it arrive, arises very simply, as you say, from just the quantum mechanics. You have a nice quote from DeWitt, I think, where it says quantum mechanics <laughs> supplies, you know, the, the mathematical formalism of quantum mechanics supplies its own interpretation. And we're not adding in, you know, there's no, oh, by the way, apart from the equations, we have to have this concept of measurement. And, and when you do a measurement, something else happens, which is uh, completely different. And we're not, yeah. neither are we saying, oh, there's an extra, there's some extra terms we add to the equations, which explain why as systems grow bigger, you know, similar to your suggestion that there was just some, uh, physical limit in size at which um, suddenly uh, things go from being in superpositions to uh, not. 
And uh, if people are interested in this, that you know, there are serious attempts to make you know less crude versions <laughs> of that work. But they but they do have, as you say, lots of challenges because the physics is just so well established, and you know, touching anything is it's very difficult uh, in terms exactly of that. Yes, and and it's worth it's worth saying there are what I would call toy models that demonstrate the possibility of these strategies in some places. And, and their advocates would say that toy model is an unfair description. There are models of, of change the physics that seem to work inside a, a certain quite narrow descriptive regime. They work quite well if you ignore ignore relativity and if you ignore light and if you, if you ignore electromagnetic effects to a large extent. Um, the challenge is, is, is expanding them beyond that to the sort of much richer regime of particle physics of radiation of photons um, and all of that good stuff yeah indeed and uh, i mean one way i like to think about these these things emerging is is we can't do this visually but if one imagines an equation and you've got these uh, a particle which is in a superposition and, and you know literally you can represent that as a term which says it is in one place i don't know it's um going through slit A, if we talk about a double slit experiment, which, which is very famous. So you, it's just an experiment where light goes through, um, passes through two slits um, and single particles, you know, there will be a term saying it's going through slit A. If it goes through slit A, it hits a detector and the poor cat uh, meets its demise. Through slit A, the, the cat's given a, a treat and everything's good. So if you kind of... You start with a state which just looks, you know, particle going through slit A, particle going through slit B. And both of those things, according to the physics, are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. As we said earlier, it's not just a representation of ignorance. And, and actually, there's experiments that you can do that really very strongly show this. These, these things aren't manipulated according to the pure calculus of probability. They can be, they can interfere with each other, those two states, and we can, we we can actually ma manipulate them in ways um, that, that make that very apparent. And yes. that's where the kind of, if people have heard of the, you know, the wave particle duality, it's, it's just saying, well, these particles are behaving like waves in as much as, as, as they can uh, interfere with one another or interfere with themselves, indeed. Yes. Um, different histories of or paths that they take interfere with with each other and, and and in terms of things i was saying earlier that the idea of a particle being a wave is is really a a way of saying that the particle is in many many different places at the same time the, the wave description of the particle is a useful description to use when the particle isn't really in one place or another place it's at the same time in many many different places yeah so we, we have this particle passing through the two slits and it's in a very quite a simple state initially um, we can think about that particle on its own but as soon as it starts to engage with the world and it hits those um, the one detector which is uh, unfortunately releasing some poison gas or something and the other detector which is <laughs> we prefer which is uh, gonna supply the cat with some treat it's it's becoming it's entering a much more complicated state um, and as that state gets ever more complicated, as you say, as we, as in one part of this equation, someone appears and, and sees the what's happened to the cat, 
something else happens in the other term. And you literally have a, you know, you have a plus sign between these two states. <laughs> and but those two states are, you know, very much separated by that plus sign. There is a point at which it is possible, as we said, to interfere them back to each other. But by the time um, the world has become very complicated, if you like, or um, by the time the effects have propagated um, outwards, it becomes very, very difficult um, for those, and you know, in practice, impossible for those those parts to, I guess, touch each other, to have any influence yeah. upon each other. Yes, exactly. How do we, what's the best way of understanding why that is? Why these interference experiments effects become harder and harder. Exactly. Yeah. Why are at the small scale, but then something happens, which means we we don't see anything from the other uh, term of the equation. Good. So imagine you've got an electron that's in two places at once. Then... To do an interference experiment that really tests the claim in two places at once, all you need to control is the electron. You need to control the electron pretty well, but it's only one particle. But now suppose, you know, electrons are charged. Let's suppose it's gone, it's gone near another electron that happens to have slipped into your apparatus. Well, now, you know, the, ele the electrons repel each other like charges repel. So let's say the electron was here and there at the same time. And let's say that the, the second electron is close to wherever here is. Um, so now, if the electron is if the first electron is here, the second electron gets deflected. If the first electron is there, it doesn't get deflected. So now the second electron is deflected and not deflected at the time, same time. But the combined state of the electrons is something like first electron here, second electron deflected, plus first electron there, second electron not deflected. So now I've got a quantum superposition of um, of both particles at once and they're correlated which is what physicists call entangled it's not that each particle is separately doing two things at the same time it's the two particles together are doing two things at the same time so now to demonstrate the interference you need fine control of both electrons and that's okay too we can do multi-electron states but you can now start to see how this could ramify i mean if i imagine there's not just one electron that was close to the the original electron but there's like a million of them now this same thing happens with all one million electrons. And now to do the interference experiment, I need fine control of a million particles. And that starts very rapidly getting computationally and experimentally impossible. Um, so what's what suppresses these experiments that show interference, what hides interference from us, isn't per se how big a system is, it's how many moving parts the system has that are all independently caught up in the entanglement process. And once we have more than a relatively small number of those particles, the interference experiments become inaccessible. So to give an example of how, the, how you can kind of bypass this sometimes, people have done the two-slit experiment you described with electrons and photons, but they've done it with much bigger things. They've done it with Buckminster fullerene molecules, for instance, these kind of carbon-60 buckyball things that have several hundred subatomic constituents. Um, I've lost track of they've done these experiments yet. I think it's certainly been explored doing these experiments with frozen bacteria. Okay. May even have been done by now. So you put a bacterium in a superposition where the bacterium is here and there at the same time. But the reason these things 
are doable is that even though the system is quite heavy, it's only really got one relevant moving part, something like where is it in space? It's not as if we've arranged things so that if the Buckminster Fullerene particle molecule went along the left path, it gets heated up. And if it goes along the right path, it doesn't get heated up. If something like that happened, then all the internal moving parts of the molecule would get entangled with the position of the molecule. And then to do the interference experiment, you'd have to control all of those moving parts and bring them all into alignment, which would be probably realistically impossible even for the buckling the fullerene um, molecule, let alone for a bacterium. Um, so it, it's, that, it's that kind of effect. Physicists call this decoherence, the, um, the, the, the redundant recording through entanglement of where, where the system is in many, many, many bits of the environment the system's in. And once that happens, um, it basically becomes unrealistic to do interference experiments. And it also becomes unrealistic to stop it getting, keeping happening. So by the time I've got a million electrons in a superposition of here and there, then the next million electrons along want to get in the act. And then the next million electrons after that want to get in the act. And so once your superposition gets above a certain scale, it just becomes uncontrollable and it spreads out at the speed of light and uh, effectively you know, within a fairly short period of time a respectable chunk of the whole world will have recorded whether the electron went one way or another um, and so now you need to control the whole world at a microscopic level in order to reverse the decoherence and show the interference effect and that that becomes basically impossible i mean if you've heard if people have heard of these these ideas that you know heat is just molecular motion and so in principle one can imagine taking a warm cup of water that was previously um ice and, and water and has melted and somehow arranging it for it all to go backwards so that the ice spontaneously reforms and the water spontaneously heats up that kind of thing is theoretically possible theoretically possible but in practice can never happen and it's very similar for the sort of interference at the large scale it's theoretically possible that you could reverse all the all the decoherence and all of the environmental entanglement and get back to the pure superposition, but in practice you never can. Yeah, I think that's a really useful um, analogy. And, and, and as you say, it's actually a very similar, you know, the mechanism is, is quite similar in a sense. Extremely similar. <clears throat> and so, yeah, you know, in principle, yes, branches that have significantly diverged could sort of remerge, but that's just... <laughs> you know the vanishingly small probability of happening so is, is, is almost not worth considering but exactly. you see you know on the very small scale there is a sense in which that is happening all, all the time uh, at least we within labs but in in many other effects um yes exactly i, I want to i just want to clarify something that may may have been obvious but but in case people didn't get it i guess when one thinks of the way which we can demonstrate interference or the way we can kind of uh, do these experiments, uh, the reason why it involves having quite precise over control over states is because you want to do things like, you know, crudely speaking, cancel out peaks and troughs. And we were talking earlier about noise cancellation. And, and, and that's, you know, the classic example of interference cancelling, which um, many people will probably be using all the time without necessarily knowing about it. And you might have noise cancelling headphones where they have a little 
microphone in them um, and they are measuring the the sound outside your headphones and creating a sort of a inverse version of that. So all the loud noises or the loud frequency or loud frequencies are, are kind of cancelled out by an out of phase um, but similar frequency. So you can kind of imagine two waves coming along, uh, touching each other and just being becoming a single line. Yeah. And and that's well, it's, it is the same mechanism with, with interference in, in quantum mechanics. But within quantum mechanics, you have your waves aren't kind of neatly localized in one place, <laughs> one thing, they're entangled and yeah. all over the place. So it, it really. It's the entanglement that makes the problem become exponentially, I mean, literally exponentially more difficult for quantum interference than for ordinary sound. So for ordinary sound, if I've got one source of sound, then I have one wave in three-dimensional space to handle. If I've got 10 sources of sound, I've got 10 waves in, th in three-dimensional space and those waves can interfere with each other. If I've got 10, if I've got one quantum particle, I can represent it as one wave in three-dimensional space. If I've got 10 quantum particles, uh, I can't I can't represent that as 10 waves in three-dimensional space. I have to represent it as one wave in 30-dimensional space. Right. <laughs> that's a lot of that's because of the interference. There's um I need to keep track of all the various places that all the particles could be. So there's a if, if you I need three numbers to say where one particle is. Uh and so if I think about my wave as tracking all the various the way which it could be in lots of places at the same time, then my wave is in three dimensions. But I need thirty numbers to say where ten particles are. You know, X and Y and Z coordinates for all the all the ten particles. So now I've got a wave in thirty dimensional space. And while you know can, canceling doing doing the math to cancel waves in to ten waves in three dimensional space is a non trivial challenge, but doing the math to cancel uh, a wave in thirty dimensional space is another thing again. Um, and it just gets worse and worse. I mean, if I have a you know an entangled superposition of all the particles in my body, there's I mean somewhere around 10 to the power 25 particles in my body. So now you're looking at a wave in three times 10 to the power 25 dimensional space. And now it's obviously way beyond our computational capacity, let alone our manipulative capacity. Right. And that's exactly why we're <coughs> this for fairly heavy things, but we're compressing down the dimensions essentially by just, you know, having the, 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 the C60, the Buckminster um, ball, the Bucky ball in, uh, you know, on a line, right, with all just one degree of freedom, essentially. Exactly. The cent the centre of mass of the buckyball is not quantum entangled with any of the other, in physics jargon, internal degrees of freedom of the buckyball. Um, you know, how how rapidly one of the electrons in the buckyball is vibrating is not correlated in any way with whether the buckyball is on is in this first, first slit or the second slit. And if it was, then... The interference experiments would become orders of magnitude more difficult to do. Okay, great. I want to. I'd like to ask another question that you ask as one of your chapter headings in your book, because I think it's really. The question itself is interesting, but I think the answer is more interesting, which is so how many worlds do mm. we have this branching going on? Can, can we count the number of worlds? Is it infinite? Is it, or is that not the right kind of way of thinking? Well, the, the one sentence answer is that it's an indefinite 
slightly arbitrary finite number that's definitely larger than basic anything you can think of. Right. So, <laughs> so definitely more than 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 30, say. So, so if it comes up in a pub quiz, that, that's the one to put down. <laughs> yeah, one, one, followed, one followed by more zeros than you could fit in the universe um, is, is a lower limit. Well, the reason, what's going on in slightly more detail is the, um, the exact way I define worlds is um, a little bit fuzzy and a little bit pragmatic and arbitrary. So if you think about the cat experiment, the way I describe that is that this, uh, there's two worlds. There's a world in which the cat is alive and a world in which the cat's dead. But it would be better to say there's two lots of worlds. There are live cat worlds and dead cat worlds. And if you zoom in a bit on the live cat world, there's a whole bunch of different ways a cat can be alive. And a whole bunch of other random processes go on that mean that um, there'll be slight differences between different versions of the living cat. And if you, um, I mean, I think that perhaps is a relatively vivid example of this. So in Schrodinger's original experiment, he didn't just do a, a one-off measurement, what sort of one and done and kill the cat, you get the wrong answer. He puts the cat in a box um, uh, and there's a poison gas vial in the box and there's a Geiger counter in the box and there's a radioactive source. And when the Geiger counter detects a radioactive emission, it knocks over the poison gas and kills the cat. So, uh, and then the idea is you wait until the, until, until you, until on average, there's a 50% chance of a radioactive atom having Emitted. So now I've got I've got a branch where the cat lives, but I've also got lots of branches where the cat dies because they correspond to it dying at different times. Right. Now, how many branches? Well, we can kind of chunk them, coarse grain them as we want. We could decide to say, well, let's consider the the, the collection of branches where the cat died between one one thousand seconds and one thousand point zero zero one seconds after the experiment. And but there was nothing magic about 0 0.001 seconds. We could we could we could we could gradate that more and more finely, and then we get more and more worlds. Eventually, you'll reach a stage where you're trying to define the worlds on a time scale so tight that quantum interference effects are coming in between the world where the cat dies at a thousand seconds and the world where the cat dies at a thousand seconds plus 10 to the minus 20 seconds or something. Once you get down to that level, it doesn't really make sense to talk about worlds anymore because what we mean by worlds are chunks of reality that don't interfere with the other chunks of reality. Mm-hmm. And at that grain, they have, they have started interfering with each other. So trying to define worlds as more fine grained than that scale isn't a sensible thing to do. It doesn't give you worlds in this sort of macroscopic does its own thing, doesn't interfere with other things way. But there wasn't a magic moment where that was right. It's not as if at 10 to the minus 20 seconds you had interference, but at 1.0001 times 10 to the minus 20 seconds you didn't have interference. You have a kind of blurry, fuzzy space where the world description becomes successively less useful. It goes from being really useful to kind of useful to really noisy but sort of a bit useful to useless. And it's a bit arbitrary exactly where you want to put that line. So in that sense, the number of worlds is a bit arbitrary, but there's a clear lower limit there. I mean, it's, def- it's definitely the case that the world separated by the points where the cat dies separated by at least a microsecond won't interfere with each other. So you've got at least that many, that, that, that final resolution of the worlds. Um, and, and I should say this kind of fuzziness, although it looks weird in the case of something that seems as fundamental as how many worlds there are, it's something we're quite used to in 
the special sciences in, in our general stories about how high level stuff comes out of low level stuff. Um, I mean, to take a silly example, if you look in, if I look at the sky at the moment, it's cloudy in Pittsburgh right now. There's loads of clouds. If you ask me how many clouds, that's not really a well-defined question because the degree to which I want to break up the clouds into separate clouds rather than treat sort of things that are wisping together as the same cloud um, is um, is going to have a level of arbitrariness, but it's not arbitrary to say there's lots of clouds. Uh, if you've led a terrible life um, and in your on your deathbed you come to realise it, there's lots of things you regret. Uh, exactly how many things you regret? Well, you know, um, that's a bit arbitrary, exactly how do you individuate them, but, but lots of them. Um, so, it's de- so you determinately regret lots of things, but the number of things you regret isn't determinate. And, and there are more scientific examples of this kind of thing, um, uh, where our higher level concepts are a bit fuzzy, but still extremely useful. Yeah, I, mean, uh, I think that's like solid matter has that category. Exactly where's the boundary of my table? Um, my table definitely is about a metre high, but is it one is it one metre plus a nanometer or one metre minus a nanometer? Well, at that level, it's a bit arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love the, the clouds um, analogy, by the way. I think that really helps clear it up. <laughs> Didn't intend upon that, but uh, yeah, I, and I think you're right. I mean, we we could, if we wanted to, define some you know definition of what a cloud is or what a world is. And in some ways, that's well arbitrary itself, unless you have a very specific interest in a particular description of the world. Uh, but I guess, yeah, we don't. We don't need to, right? As exactly recognize the world when we see it, when we find it uh, useful to talk about it, which is um, you know when it when it's branched off sufficiently from uh, other points so that it's uh, <laughs> won't interfere. Um, there's some fuzziness as to where that happens, but in practical terms, it just happens so so quickly, right? These things are propagating, facts propagating out at the speeds of light. Um, that yeah. we don't need to worry about it. It's probably more of a worry for. It's perhaps like a an attack vector, I guess, for people who don't like many worlds interpretation. Yeah. Um, you know, you've replaced one fuzzy term measurement with like another fuzzy idea of of, of worlds. Yes, I, I feel like you've done quite a good job at defending that in, in in what you've just said. But I don't know if there's any any other things you would would add on that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose. You might put it this way. I mean, a t- so traditional philosophy attempts to solve the, the measurement problem have tried to get rid of the fuzziness. And the way I think about the many worlds theory, which I just want to be clear, incidentally, I haven't, I haven't talked at all about the history of this, but this is not my idea. It's an idea I've played with and developed, but it's many years, many years older. Um, but the, what, what I take to be the important point about the many worlds theory is it, it doesn't get rid of the fuzziness and approximation. Um, it puts it in a, in a place where it's legitimate and harmless to have a presence and approximation. It, it's appropriate for our stories about the relation between the large scale and the small scale to have a bit of fuzziness and approximation. And we're used to that all the way across science. We're used to the idea that concepts like liquid or conductor or animal uh, or gene are extremely useful and productive um, and totally robust and real and not in any sense a kind of observer's trick of the light and yet are a little bit approximately defined um, in terms of um, of the lower level things going on. So why, you know, when, when exactly is something liquid? We've got some very robust descriptions of what liquids do, but there are going to be borderline cases and fuzzy places where, you know, I mean, it's, it's, 
is rock liquid. I mean, on time scales, uh, especially it's glass liquid. People talk about that sometimes. And the real answer is it's kind of a little, little defined because it depends quite what you mean by liquid. But is water a liquid? Yes. Um, is rock a liquid? No. Are you a liquid? No. The concept is robust, it's useful, there's a well-developed subject of fluid dynamics, but for all that, there's a bit of fuzz and give in the concept of liquid. So all I'm really saying is that kind of fuzz and give is fine in understanding quantum mechanics, and if, and if, I, if our understanding of the relation between the, mac, the macro world, where the cats are definitely dead or alive, and the quantum mechanical description where they're not, has a bit of fuzz and give, that's okay. What's not okay is for this sort of primitive concept of measurement to be actually just written in to the the, the fine structure of our theory. I mean, I guess one way of putting it is that, and the fuzz and give is fine, provided you've got a non-fuzz and give description of the world at the deeper level. And the full quantum mechanical description, uh, the way I want to talk about it, isn't fuzzy at all. Um, it's a description of a quantum mechanical world that is very alien to our intuitions, but which is perfectly sharply describable, which evolves in its own sharply describable way. Um, it's only if we want to relate that to uh, macroscopic concepts to you know special science notions like chairs and tails and cats and dogs that we that we need to have a story that has a sort of fuzzy aspect to it and a lot of the problem with say the idea that quantum mechanics has a different law of dynamics for measurement is that one sort of doesn't respect that separation one has fuzz in the very formulation of the microscopic theory yeah, and I, I, thinking about it now, I mean, I, I think the, the title of your book is very well, I'm sure you thought very carefully about this in, in putting emergence right at the right at the beginning of, of the title, the emergent multiverse. Yeah. And I, I, it is that emergence which is doing the work in, in transporting us from a very precise description of the microphysics. And then out of that, you do get fuzzy structures arising, but... <laughs> One would be crazy <laughs> to dispute that or or, or, or or try to say that that's not a legitimate thing to happen because, you know, as you say, this is our theory of, uh, uh, you know, you talk about tigers in the book, right? No one, no one denies that at the basis, tigers are obeying the laws of physics and there is a uh, microphysics of, of tigers, but it's not a very useful uh, thing to talk about <laughs> when you're in the jungle. Uh, you're not going to survive too long um, thinking about that. And, and tigers themselves are a pretty fuzzy concept. You know, their cells are changing all the time. There's uh, interactions um, with the external world. Exactly the limits of one would be very hard to define, but you'll certainly know one when you see one. Right, um, exactly, yes. The tiger level description is objective and robust, even if it's not completely precise. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so I think, uh, I mean... Uh, I feel emergence is doing the work for us um, uh, there in separating, um, uh, creating a bridge, I guess, between the fuzz and the, and the precision. Exactly. Yes, it's, it's an emergent multiverse. It's not a fundamental multiverse. And, and you're exactly right. That's the main reasons in the title. The secondary reason is that emergence is sexy, so it sells copies. <laughs> Very good. Um, that's a good segue because uh, in terms of uh, sexiness, we've, we've just had, uh, you know, everything everywhere all at once and i can't help wondering if they there is like a slight allusion to everett the mm. originator of this just in the ev repetitions or the ever re repetitions there i 
probably a coincidence, but who knows? I, I never even thought of that. That's a lovely thing. <laughs> I, I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to, about your thoughts on the way that the many worlds interpretation is, is viewed outside of these physics and, and philosophy mm. communities and doesn't always seem to have particularly accurate representations. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that film? I don't know if you've seen it or or, if, or any other works that you think mm. of. Yeah, I haven't actually gone around to seeing that particular film, but it's becoming increasingly professionally embarrassing not to have done, so I need to do something about this. I've seen plenty of the other bits and pieces. I think the story's going to be complicated. I mean, I think there's there is genuine flow of these ideas um, from popular science, from science to popular science to popular culture. And I think um, it's genuinely true that one of the reasons you see many worlds ideas talked about more in popular spaces is they've kind of, well, in the political science terms, they've come inside the opposite window. They've come inside the range of views that scientists and then science journalists taking the cues from scientists have started taking seriously and seriously enough that one doesn't just laugh the conversation down if it comes up. So go back even maybe 20, 25 years, then there would be something seen quite widespread as unserious or inappropriate about talking about parallel universes, many worlds inside physics. I mean, perhaps a little longer than that, but certainly by the 80s, that was true. Um, these days, I wouldn't say the many worlds theory is the majority view in quantum mechanics among physicists but it's very widely known and very widely supported or at least taken seriously it's certainly not a fringe position in uh in physics anymore and so that legitimates these things being the kind of thing one can write a potentially slightly breathless um new york times uh or bbc um uh popular science article about and it's the kind of thing you can be asked to give a popular talk about. And then that can be a route the ideas go for creative professionals who are looking for inspiration. So one, one particular example I do know is the US show Devs, which was all about quantum information and computing in many worlds. And I do, in, in that particular case, I know because I talked to the showrunner that uh, they'd watched a bunch of uh, sort of semi-popular talks on many worlds and Everett um, by me and other people as part of the prep work for that show. So that's a, that's a, direct vector where you see it turning up and um, that said uh i think there's another slightly more deflationary reason why many worlds are all over the place at the moment which is just that the marvel movies have been super popular and the multiverse idea has been all over comic culture for a very long time you know, back, and i'm not really a comic person but way back into the 20th century and um, and while some of those ideas perhaps are also inspired by science fiction that's in turn inspired by, by physics, I think it's also true that big, complicated science fiction franchises start growing multiverses very naturally just because they start contradicting themselves in various places and then trying to reconcile that. So the comics seem to invent and reinvent the idea of the multiverse as much as a man as a method of managing their, their continuity snafus and then trying to turn a bug into a feature as anything else so there's a that's the boring deflation or not exactly boring but from a physicist's point of view the boring deflationary reason why um the, partially why some of these things are out there it's sort of downstream of marvel and marvel's downstream of, of um comic continuity culture but i'd like to think that at least some of it is the um is the scientific contribution 
No, well, I, very interesting about devs, uh, and that's uh, it, yeah, clearly the, the idea is is spreading. Um, I, I wanted to ask another about one other particular uh, work, which I don't know if you've read, which is um, "Anxiety is the Dizziness of Freedom" by Ted Chang. Um, no, I've read a bunch. I don't think so anyway. I've, I've read a number of Chang stories, but I don't recall that one by name. So yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure you do remember it if you, if you had read it. It's sort of right in your <laughs> wheelhouse, I guess. Um, although, as with all these things, the representation of the physics has to kind of bend the rules a little bit. So obviously, of course. yeah, you can't just say there's many worlds and unfortunately we can't get to them or get any information between them. But yeah. um, So uh, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but as you know, I think Ted Chang is ideas, right? so I, I can probably maybe, I'm going to try and get across some of the ideas without spoiling it. Okay. <laughs> so it, it's a, in, in the story, it imagines that characters, uh, you can buy a machine, I think it's called a prison, which uh, I think you press a button or something and there's a quantum event and you know a branching happens so you're standing there with your prison and you have uh, a counterpart who um, uh-huh. and calls paracel to who then goes off with with their prison and you're you're able to send a limited amount of information between the two worlds uh, after that fact mm-hmm. uh, and, and what i think is quite interesting about the story is it explores some of the even though the interaction between these characters is very limited, just the knowledge that they're sharing about themselves uh, really changes their their understanding of their own lives. Mm. So, for example, there's there's cases there's a case where uh, one character in the past has has taken a very rash action, and in trying to understand themselves, they're thinking about well. You know, was that thing I did fundamentally part of my character? You know, is this yeah. is this something core to me, or is it kind of a an aberration and 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 just you know something that doesn't define who I am? Yes. And so that it's of great relevance to these these folks that they can they can talk to one another. Yeah, and I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on whether whether the many worlds interpretation should help us or, or, or change our change our views on on who we are um on, mm. on morals on moral actions and, and so forth yeah mm. discuss <laughs> yeah i mean i think maybe indirectly so i'll give an analogy first i mean i think i would expect in the longer term as and when these ideas are taken uh, uh, genuinely get wise protraction i would expect it to have an impact somewhat similar to some of the sort of renaissance realizations by people you know arguments by people like bruno that we're not alone in the universe right. that um the stars in the sky are other suns um and um uh, there could be people living on this on, on, on some of the worlds around those other suns and in one sense that's um that doesn't directly affect anything that happens here. I mean, certainly in the 17th century, even now, our ability to learn the detailed facts of what might be happening on these other planets in distant galaxies is, is close to nil and doesn't directly affect you know, interest rates and people's sex lives and whatever, um, political campaigns. But there's an indirect way of 
ethos in which our picture of the world and our sort of philosophy and our conception of ourselves as a civilization has changed enormously by those realizations. We have a very different conception of our place in the universe, in some ways a more humbling conception than we had before the Renaissance. And it's, it's telling that uh, the Inquisition only threatened Galileo, they burned Bruno at the stake. Um, so I think, um, I, I don't think the many worlds theory directly affects much of anything about you know what we should find ethical and how we should live our lives. But I think widespread realization of the sets of ideas potentially does in the longer term. And I think um, the your example from, from Chang is a, is, a, is a good illustration of this. I, th I think one of the things it does is it gives us a different kind of perspective on risk and probability and happenstance. I mean, so suppose you're um, in you know, ordinary situation here, you're, you've gone to a restaurant, um, you have very unethically chosen to drive home when you've had way too much to drink. Um, reflecting on that in the morning when in fact you got home fine there was no trouble you can think well i took a moral risk but i got lucky but of course extremely plausibly and in many mm -hmm. worlds work because mm -hmm. there's bound to be plenty of chance events determining what other bits of traffic turned up and maybe even how your reflexes respond in certain situations there are going to be branches in which your decision to drive mm -hmm. drunk had tragic consequences either for you or for other people and Arguably, if we were sufficiently wise, we'd recognise that even without the crutch of the many worlds theory, and we'd realise that the decision to drive home really drunk was quite badly morally wrong, and and also extremely unwise. And the coincidence that, as it happens, no harm came of it, isn't really salient to assessing the the moral and prudential unwisdom of doing it maybe, maybe if we were sufficiently wise we could realize that anyway but we're often not sufficiently wise and i think the the realization of the fact that other branches are there where um other things turn out worse is, is perhaps helpful in that way and i think similarly these things can make bad stuff that happens in your life seem a little you can be slightly more philosophical about it i mean if you know, you have a, a chance diagnosis of some, you know, cancer or say or something. And um, is there some comfort in thinking that you just happen to get very unlucky and that there were many people just like you who didn't get the cancer and carry on valuing your projects and loving your loved ones or people who are equivalent to your loved ones? I mean, maybe. I mean, it's not directly going to change how you causally handle the tragedy in your own life but maybe it gives you a perspective on it i mean again again you see these themes in early pieces of philosophy i mean there's a a long-standing you know theme almost like i guess of various sorts of um sorts of sort of sort of buddhist conceptions where one one's ability to distance oneself from the first person perspective and see things in a a broader way is can be helpful and so in a sense this is just more of that but again maybe it makes it a bit a bit sharper and more vivid. So those were my guesses are some of the ways in which these things in the long term potentially influence sort of self-conception and our philosophy. Yeah, I think that's I mean, the other example that, that just came to my head was if you take a decision that you believe was right, but didn't work out for some kind of contingent reason, 
I can well imagine there's some, I mean, I think there is some extra comfort in thinking, well, maybe I'm just in, in that kind of technical parlance, like a, a low branch weight, right? yeah. <laughs> part of the, part of the multiverse. And I, I, you know, I, I'm in that bottom, you know, one percentile, it makes the other 99 percentile <laughs> possible. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, um, the thing that makes it slightly difficult, of course, is that often we don't know what the probabilities are. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the very fact that the bad consequence occurs should increase our that's evidence that the probabilities were quite bad. That's true. Yeah. So so that does complicate it. But but even so, there are places where you can feel these. You know, something happened that was circumstances beyond your control. You can think, well, you know, the problem. That's just how the probabilities happen to come out. Yeah, interesting. And I, I, I agree entirely with your. Your assessment that this it it probably shouldn't change any of our moral decisions or the amount of thought that we put into our actions, but it does it does maybe throw that into sharper relief and perhaps yeah. <laughs> you know that's a good way to put it. Thought that you know by I, I'm going to have many sort of counterparts or parasols or something spreading out from who I am, it's almost like a multiplication of consciousness, which is, yeah, quite mind blowing, but, uh, and not necessarily directional as it were in, in terms mm. of pointing to doing things differently, but it does, it does add, um, emphasis, uh, coming back, I guess, to Bruno and, and, and so forth, it, it does make me, you know, it reminds me that one of the one of the kind of initial reactions to people hearing about the multiverse is, oh, oh my gosh, that's just like too big. <laughs> but, but I mean, we, we we've been through this before, right? Yes. And not with always great consequences. Obviously, it, and in some way, the analogy holds really well in that, as you say, we're not adding any new stuff, right? We've not changed the physics here. We're not saying, oh, you're going to have faster than light travel in any of these branches. Yeah. We're just saying there's a lot more of the stuff that we know about already. Yeah. And that seems very similar to this kind of extension that we saw with Bruno. And, and you know, perhaps if we find that the space time that we live in is, is not bound, but is, is infinite and there is um, sort of uh, finite um, matter density uh, smeared throughout it, that... Uh, you know, we might also see uh, or have more reason to believe that there's just way, way more stuff yeah. than, than than we've previously considered. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, there are, ten, there are ten to the eleven galaxies in the visible universe. Um, they have they have kind of all of ten to the eleven stars in each. Most of those stars have planets. I mean, I can I can quote those numbers, but if you actually ask me to visualize it, my my mind boggles. It's just dizzying. And um, now. The, the Everett branches, the, the numbers are even bigger, but frankly, the numbers are already way too big for our intuitions to cope in ordinary astrophysics. Yeah. And I think I, I want to revisit this just one last time because I want to really try to deal with all the objections one might have to the many worlds interpretation, trying to anticipate what, what people might be thinking. Because uh, this links into this, this idea of, uh, I guess, falsifiability and yeah. you know, we can't access these, these other branches or these other worlds once they've become worlds. Yeah. And that's almost the definition of a world we, we've, we've kind of... Yes, exactly. <laughs> However, uh, I think you put it very 
you know, succinctly where you say, well, quantum mechanics is the best, you know, the theory, which is certainly the most evidence towards it of all theories, perhaps quantum mechanics entails the many worlds interpretation. If we, if we don't mess with anything, therefore, you know, all that evidence going in at the front end is, is then evidence for the many worlds interpretation. Uh, and I do find that quite analogous with, you know, this is just the, the, the size of the space time that we believe that we believe in, we live in now mm. where, you know, we can't see, we, we can see those, we, we can't see all the stuff that we think there is. Right. Yeah. And, and we can't even in principle, perhaps see some of it, you know, we might yeah. make discoveries that just say, okay, it's, it's too large to see certain, certainly it's too large to see the, the stuff that is outside our light, light cone, as it were. Do we believe that that stuff <laughs> doesn't belong in the theory? Mm. I, I I would say that most people don't. Nonetheless, I, I feel there's a different, there's a sense in which people struggle maybe with the learner world's interpretation and, and, and thinks that it, and think that it fits in into a different category somehow. Yeah. You know, are, are they right to do that? Or is it really, you know, a very similar situation to, to what we see with the space time, let's say? So I don't think they're right, but I certainly think they're, you know, it's a fault on the right side. I, I think it's it's always right to say about scientific theories, like, you know, which, which bits of the theories are doing the work, how, you know, how seriously should we take them? You know, you've, you've done philosophy of science, you know that... Um, you know, the past is a graveyard of false theories that people used to think were good theories. Um, and if we simply uncritically believe everything that our current theories say, we're just inevitably going to end up believing some things that get superseded by later theories. So it does make sense to be critical about you know, which, what are the things we really have evidence for. So what can we say here? I mean, can you, can you test the theory? Well, the theory is, is, is unitary quantum mechanics, it's unmodified quantum mechanics. You can, of course, test that. If you violate the superposition principle, then you have falsified quantum mechanics and within the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics can you um sometimes it's helpful to think about testing theories against other theories can you test the many worlds theory against the theory that all our theory is is an interpretive is a device to produce results for calculations not really um almost by definition but you could you can't test you can't test the theory that fossils are dead dinosaurs against the theory that fossils are a good calculation the dinosaurs are a good calculational fiction to let us make predictions about fossils those those are those are the same theory with a different philosophical attitude to it can you test the many worlds theory against um any specific proposal for how we might change the physics you know, if you, somebody says well when things get above certain mass scales superpositions stop happening can you test the many worlds theory against that yes you can um and People have made many proposals and parameterized ideas for ways you could modify quantum mechanics to make Schrodinger's cat go away. Um, and many of those theories have been tested and falsified by evidence and the evidence to support the many worlds theory. Some of those tests are ongoing. I mean, it's, it's always right to look for testable alternatives to our best physics, so we should keep doing those kind of experiments. But we do keep doing them and they do keep confirming that there doesn't seem to be any evidence for this change of the equations of quantum mechanics. Could there be some change in the equations of quantum mechanics that's so very far from what we can get at empirically that yet somehow suppresses 
the many world branching structure? Well, yeah, there could be. And maybe there are, it's not difficult to come up with contrived examples of that that we'd never in fact be able to test. But the point is we're now, I, I think the burden of proof at this point shifts a little. Um, I mean, we'd always be a bit suspicious of burden of proof arguments, but we're, we're then saying we've got we've got our theory. Our theory has all of this structure. We're considering a modification to the theory for which we have no evidence that we're led to try making essentially, at least this this is the, the many worlds version of it, that, that we're we're led to try to make that change to our theory largely for reasons of aesthetic preference, of having some philosophical discomfort with the fact that our theory without these modifications leads to something we find distasteful and so we'll make the modifications for that reason that's not normally a good reason to change scientific theory and as a strategy it hasn't generally been conspicuously successful in developing good science so that's the sense in which i'd say i think the, taking the many worlds theory seriously thinking those terms using those ideas is good science and science that you know, reports to accept experiment in an appropriate way even while i'll concede that you'll never do an experiment that very directly detects another branch in the way that we could very directly detect, I don't know, planets around Alpha Centauri, I say. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we, we could also probably never do a, a direct test that, or for planets that are around, I don't know, some galaxy like cone, obviously. Yeah, or, but, or, or even some galaxy a billion parsecs away. Um, where the whole galaxy is just a dot on our visual field. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and look, if somebody wants to say, for that reason, you should be less confident of the existence of the many worlds than you are of the existence of the planets around Alpha Centauri, I, I don't know if Centauri has planets, actually, it's a binary, uh, planets around some reasonably close star, um, I, th I think I'm going to say, yeah, that's reasonable. And I guess I probably, I'm, I am less confident in the existence of the uh of the Everett branches than um than I am of those planets. I'm you know I'm very confident there are planets around those distant stars. Um I'm only moderately confident that many worlds theory is right ultimately. I'm very confident that it's the best way to read the quantum theory we have and I think there are good reasons to think that the properties that lead to many worlds theory are going to survive in any plausible replacement of quantum mechanics. So I think it's pretty likely that something like the many worlds theory is true, but you know um, wouldn't bet the mortgage on it right right so it's it's the best that we have um and it is delivered to us by the best theory we have as well so i think and, that, and the best theory we have is a really really good theory to be clear right. yeah it's not, it's not it's not just the best of the bad bunch it's a spectacularly successful theory yeah so i mean i i think that's pretty compelling but yeah it is interesting how how one's intuitions of you know the fact that this is not something we can reach out and touch in principle in the same way that we could around you know those, those planets does sort of put it into a different uh fold somehow mm. uh, yeah i think i think that's fair i mean and look you see there's other bits of physics as well i mean even before we detected gravity waves directly at the ligo observatory it would have been almost impossible for there not to be gravity waves there was incredibly good indirect evidence for gravity waves because by neutron stars orbiting each other were losing energy and they weren't losing energy through radiation and they were losing energy at exactly the rate that was predicted on the assumption they were emitting gravity waves. Very hard to see that and mm. not think it must be gravity waves. 
yet there was still something important, even if only psychologically, in actually detecting gravity waves directly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, we do see, I don't know if there are any holdouts on the gravity wave. Probably, probably not. Maybe more with black holes, perhaps. You know, that'd be yeah, possibly. Although, again, I mean, the event, the event horizon telescope literally photographs them. So it's... Um, exactly. It's so, so I think now we've kind of closed, you know, closed that off, that, that, that debate. So, you know, yeah. I, I no, it took, it took a while for similar reasons. I, I guess it's it's a challenge with with the many worlds interpretation in that there is probably nothing more that we can deliver, right, in, in terms of uh, providing evidence for it other than the evidence for quantum mechanics as the yeah but there are bits of evidence that i think speak to it closer so suppose that we as is probably going to be the case sometime in the next 20 or 30 years suppose we have a working general purpose quantum computer the the way that works is effectively to be able to create more or less arbitrary entangled superpositions and manipulate them in more or less arbitrary ways um it's logically consistent to suppose that we could build a quantum computer that demonstrates the universality of the superposition principle to that degree and yet have some collapse mechanism that kicks in at macroscopic levels but it starts to become somewhat less plausible quite quite deeply relevant aspects of the theory will be tested very deeply by a quantum computer yeah if you want to get a little science fictional if you build a quantum computer and then ran um an ai program on it that was you know could pass the turing test then you start getting at least somewhere towards being able to control branching and report on branching for not for us but for beings we can interact with but now we're now we're a lot further in the future and by the time we can build ais at that level we'll probably have more serious things to worry about <laughs> if, if yeah if we make it that far right yeah i think that's interesting i mean i, I guess so 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 on the one point you know building that sort of computer would um provide evidence against the competing interpretations, I suppose, and that we wouldn't be seeing dynamical, if we're not, supposing we're not seeing this kind of spontaneous um, collapse or disappearance of, of, of superpositions, um, then, okay, yeah. Th- there's well, no- it, would, it would constrain the space. It would be a different kind of thing that constrains the space of collapse theories. Well, it's never going to constrain that to zero, but they are genuinely constrainable by experiment, and the experimental constraints are getting tighter. And I guess the the you know the the general intelligence AGI point, you know, is the suggestion there then that yeah on the other hand there could actually be a more positive proof of the main world's interpretation where we could uh, I don't know run some interference. It's hard to imagine how we do this without knowledge of the other world, right? Where we would be able to run an interference experiment and show it it exists. So. It, I struggle to see how it would, you know, given we'd have knowledge of another branch, what extra it would tell us. We wouldn't be able to extract any new information from it, as it were. So here's what you could do in principle, and these are very, obviously, these are very speculative thought experiments, but in principle, um, I can uh, I can run a computer program and I can give it a superposition of inputs. And I can then do some collective action. I, I, the person sitting outside the quantum computer, can then do some collective action on the quantum computer that effectively involves rolling back the computer program's response to the input and re-interfering with computer program states. And it's, it's fairly easy to construct protocols 
of that kind where you would get a different final outcome if the program was genuinely in a superposition than if the program spontaneously collapsed into one or other. Yeah. No, no. That's 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 fairly straightforward. So then if you could say then then if you want to say, and this is where it becomes a bit science fictional, if you want okay. to say, well, my computer program is sophisticated enough that I'm going to treat it as an intentional agent. Um, I'm going to regard it as well conscious to use a better word. Um then I'm going to say, well, the quantum. What I'm now distinguishing is, well, was the was the was this program genuinely in a superposition of inputs, or did it actually only experience one input? And now that that genuinely would be, is a testable question. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so you would be asking, what did it feel like to be in that state, in a, in a sense? Or, uh... Yeah. And there are questions you could ask that would have to pass through a very narrow filter because you need to get the same answer from the computer program if the computer program is talking to me outside the computer yeah important that its response doesn't split me yes yeah it needs to diverge come back again give a single exactly answer. but you could do something like did you receive the input yes no and it sends yeah and, and you can confirm that it determinately sends yes that would be a performable action okay yeah, interesting. So, so, like, so my input is a superposition of C red and C green. You can ask, did you see a color? And you should get the answer yes, whether it saw red or saw green. And you could you could throttle the communication channels tightly enough that you uh, that you, uh, you you should get one. Um, you could definitely get that answer. So you could do certain rudimentary checks of that kind of the program's functioning the way you think it's supposed to be functioning. This is this is a an application of AGI which uh, hadn't hadn't considered before. Uh, I actually, there was a workshop about this in, in obviously San Francisco that I went to last November that was actually trying to play with these ideas. It's very speculative. I mean, again, I think the the point at which we can run an AGI on a quantum computer in any realistic length of time is the point long past the stage at which the world will have been radically transformed in good or good ways or bad and and that i i don't work in ai i have no no, no deep insight as to whether uh the threshold to the agi is 20 years away or a thousand years away i think i think the answer is always 20 years or <laughs> that's definitely the answer you get but you get by if you, if you survey a community it's roughly the same as how long it'll take to get fusion yeah it's stable since the 1950s in both cases I think we, we we've ended up at the sort of the most speculative point we could get to, which seems like a good place to. Uh... Yeah, and I want and I want to emphasise. I'm, I'm this is playfully speculating, but the the ideas of the core every interpretation are, are non speculative in that sense. It's a a quite serious conservative way of thinking about quantum mechanics that gets extensively used, at least as a way of thinking, um, by a lot of people in theoretical physics. Yeah, I do. I do think that's that is a that is the take-home point and unfortunately everything everywhere all at once is not the most accurate representation of of, of the many worlds interpretation uh, you know they say all publicity is good publicity so. right <laughs> um well thank you so much david this has been a real pleasure uh it's been yeah many years since i spoke to you but uh i, I still uh Carry the flame for the error interpretation. And this is renewed and added extra fuel and uh, thoughts on to that. Well, so, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's been great.